Deadline's Doc Talk episode is sponsored by National Geographic Documentary Films, presenting Bobby Wine, the People's President. In Uganda's 2021 presidential election, music star, activist, and opposition leader Bobby Wine rallies his people in a dangerous fight for freedom from an oppressive 35-year regime. Bobby Wine, the People's President, starts streaming on Hulu and Disney Plus October 6th. Hi, I'm John Ridley, writer, director, and founder of No Studios. And I'm Matt Carey, documentary editor at Deadline Hollywood. And this is Doc Talk, a new podcast where each week Matt and I dig into the critical content being created by some of today's most outstanding documentary filmmakers, storytellers, and industry leaders. And Matt, very good to be back with you for our second episode of Doc Talk. It's great to be with you. Very excited about it. Last week, you had incredible conversation with four filmmakers who literally uh, changed individuals' lives and, and righted wrongs in the justice system. Um, powerful conversation. But as we all know, for filmmakers, storytellers, you have to have partners. We want to talk to the filmmakers, but as we said, we want to talk to the industry leaders. And this week, we have a terrific conversation with Tom Powers from the Toronto International Film Festival. Yes, he's long been a great advocate for the documentary forum, both at the Toronto International Film Festival and uh, Doc NY. I see. And uh, he's really in the forefront of championing powerful, creatively bold documentaries. And uh, our conversation, what I thought was so interesting, is that he's really getting into where the rubber meets the road. In other words, it's one thing to create a fantastic film that really pushes boundaries creatively, but you got to get it out there into the world. You need distribution. So he's talking about both the art of documentary and the business side of it. It's a terrific conversation. Here's Matt Carey, myself, John Ridley, with Tom Powers, the Documentary Program Director at the Toronto International Film Festival. Tom, thank you for joining us on Doc Talk. Thank you for doing this. Glad to be here. I have a couple of questions for you, and I sort of this would be sort of the state of the state and a bit of a two-part. I want to start with, you know, the show and there's business. Let's start with the business. And how would you assess right now the business of documentaries, particularly over the last few years when there was maybe a bit of an explosion in the streaming market where people were really hungry for all kinds of documentaries? In 2023, at the end of 2023, how would you assess the business end? So I would say that the hunger has not gone away. The people are consuming documentary films like they never have before. You sit down on a plane and you open up your in-flight entertainment, there's going to be a section on documentary there. That was unthinkable 25 years ago uh, or so when I got into this business. So that is doing great. It's not going away. There's plenty of documentaries being made, plenty of great documentaries being made. There is a little bit of an interruption right now between the great films that are being made and the audiences that want to see them. And that interruption is a larger disruption in the media business uh, right now of the convulsions that are going on as media moved into streaming for 10 years or so that created a lot of opportunities for documentaries and created a lot of audience uh, for documentaries. Now, the whole media business is experiencing convulsions because the money that they used to make off of uh, cable TV is declining 
and the number of subscribers that they're signing up for their streaming services is plateauing. So the amount of spending that they've been doing needs to be adjusted. I think implicit in your question is a worry that is prevalent inside the documentary industry right now, at least in North America, that we experienced in the last 10 years these eye-popping sales of streamers paying $5 million, $12 million, you know, or more for documentary films. And that was head-turning, but it was also kind of a bubble that wasn't really tethered to real business. It's not like the days when theatrical distributor would pay an amount of money. I mean, I think the amount of money paid for Supersize Me, you know, 20 plus years ago was between half a million dollars and a million dollars, very high at that time. And then you could kind of trace, okay, well, Supersize Me made X million dollars at the box office. You could see whether that deal made sense or not. These days, it's harder to tell whether a deal made sense or not. So, I mean, there's there's a lot more that we could unpack there, but uh, you tell me where you want to go. Well, I, you know, where I want to go, and I think you're, you're being very diplomatic when you say things like interruptions and things like that. And I don't want to bag on streamers. You know, we, we've, these conversations are out there right now ad nauseum. But is it the interruptions or is it the directions? You know, I, I never want to get down on entertainment. At the end of the day, what entertains people entertains people. But I do think in the doc space, there's both the entertainment and a drive to get the stories that maybe other people would not uncover in other spaces, whether it's news, whether, uh, you know, just information spaces. We see that uh, contraction constantly. One does see more, and there are quote-unquote complaints about the true crime docs or docs that are focused on an individual personality. I'm not going to say those are bad. I would say the Brooke Shields documentary made me rethink her, her career, how I may have looked at young female stars when I was growing up in the 80s. So there is a value to them. There is a value to them. But does that value then, when you talk about interruptions, do you fear that the marketplace, the streamers, that sort of as Martin Scorsese says, when they're just looking at it as content, as opposed to what that content is, that we've begun down a road that perhaps, like a lot of things in media, you know, yesterday is yesterday and we will never get back to that yesterday. Yeah, I mean, I think that we've gotten kind of spoiled in the last 10 years by the easy availability of a wide range of kinds of filmmaking and information, you know, at our fingertips. You know, before I worked in film, going back 30 years, I worked in underground comic book publishing. I, I, mm. I worked for Fantagraphics Books that publishes Robert Crumb and Love and Rockets. And the amount of effort that you had to go through if you were a fan of those comics to track them down was extraordinary. <laughs> you, had to, you didn't, like, know where the shop was in your town to, you know, go get it and, you know, and hope that a copy was uh, available. And the same was true of art house movie going. When I was young and had heard about a film called Don't Look Back about Bob Dylan, you know, I had to wait until, you know, there was a screening at the University of Michigan at some student screening seminar. And I had to go there that night to see that screening. And if I didn't, it might take you know another two or three years before I'd have a chance to see uh, Don't Look Back. So that's where we came from not that long ago. Now we're in a time where there's a 
feeling of availability. There's a, a feeling that Amazon and, uh, and Apple TV should have every film ever made. They don't. Uh, unfortunately, and that's not a knock against them that, you know, they have quite an extraordinary uh, library of content. But it does mean that if you are looking for, let's call them smaller films, you know, films that are more political, not about famous people, you're going to have to look harder. And but I but I think, you know, those of us who have sought out stories outside the mainstream have always had to look harder. But a bit of optimism from you in, in the business side of it. So there's the business. And I want to ask you now about the quote unquote show side. I don't want to pretend that I've um, spent my life diving deeply into documentaries. But over the last handful of years, where I've really come to appreciate documentaries, one of the things I've really appreciated, and again, I don't want to pretend that it hasn't always been there, but such a high level of artistry that's in these films. I think of films that I've really loved over the last few years, Fayadia, um, Bad Axe, even All That Breeze is one of the most cinematic films that you'll see. I'm, I'm curious with you, and I, I'm, I'm going to ask this question in two parts, but I'm going to put both of them to you right now. Where do you see stylistically things going are encouraged by the artist continuing to push the style and for you and I, I because you work in the doc space i don't want you to play overly favorites but things that you've seen or things that you know that are coming up there was one film you talked about coming up that i think you had the wtf was your expression <laughs> talking about how it energized you so how do you feel about that continual the, the pushing of the envelope of artistry which may be a leading question but in that, in the things that are coming up for you, what excites you most or what films would you say, hey, they're all great, but these few, please, please, please check them out. Well, I do think that the artistry is very high in documentary film these days. And I think you notice it every time a major film festival like, you know, Berlin or Venice uh, puts a documentary uh, in its lineup. They often wind up winning the competition. So uh, Venice's past year, uh, French filmmaker Nicolas uh, Philibert uh, won the Golden Bear with his film On the Adamant. And uh, last year at Venice, uh, of course, Laura Poitras won with her uh, film All the Beauty and the Bloodshed. So I think there's a sign right there that the, the artistic vibrancy of, uh, of documentaries in the wider world of cinema. Um, you asked me about, you know, things that people should look out for. So we're speaking a couple days before the Toronto Film Festival begins. The film that uh, you referred to that I described as the most, you know, WTF story in this <laughs> year's uh, lineup is called The Contestant. Um, it uh, goes back to the 1990s and the early days of reality TV uh, in Japan, where television was kind of leading the way in different uh, forms of extremes. And there was a reality TV show contestant uh, who went by the name Nasubi, uh, a nickname. And he kind of unwittingly, you know, he wanted to be on TV. He agreed, to, he auditioned for the show, not quite knowing what it was. And when he won the audition, they told him, okay, you're going to go in this room. We're going to take your clothes away. We're going to give you a, a stack of sweepstakes coupons from magazines and you have to fill out these coupons to win back everything you need to survive food clothes electronics and you have to stay here in this room 
uh, all by yourself, filling out these sweepstakes until you win a million yen of prizes. Hmm. And as someone who wanted to be on TV, he did it. And uh, it went on for months and months he was in this room. What he didn't know is that his life was being filmed and broadcast in a weekly uh, TV show. And when he finally emerged, he discovered he'd become one of the most famous people in Japan. Uh, so that film is called The Contestant, and it'll have its world premiere a few days from now. And I can't wait to hear the conversations uh, that I can finally have after I watched this film a few months ago uh, with people. So, Tom, there were, I think, by my count, at least 16 films that headed into uh, TIFF without acquisition. They're sales titles. So that's exciting. But I think there's some nervous filmmakers because, again, as uh, we've been discussing, it's been a rather slow acquisition market going back at least to Sundance. That's uh, undeniable. And we will see, you know, I mean, I think at the beginning of this year was a moment when lots of the distribution community could not foresee what was happening were, you know, pulling back, keeping their hands in their pocket. I don't think that can last forever. And so I do think that you're going to see a sales trend pick up at some point. And by the way, some of those films that were at Sundance in January and didn't make immediate sales in the winter have now gone on to um, be sold. So The Disappearance of Cher Height went to IFC Films, uh, the Sundance Prize winner, about Nikki Giovanni was recently announced as a sale to HBO. So things are just taking longer than they used to, but it doesn't mean that they're not finding uh, distribution homes. But, you know, at Sundance, there are quite a few films that are coming in with major representation uh, behind them. Uh, CAA is representing two films. One is called Sorry, Not Sorry, about the women who brought accusations against uh, Louis C.K. The other film that CAA is representing is called Mountain Queen, uh, The Summits of Lakpa Sherpa by uh, Lucy Walker, Academy Award-nominated uh, filmmaker. Two-time Academy Award nominee. <laughs> that is right. Put a plug-in for Lucy. <laughs> Uh, one of the films that I'm very excited for uh, people to experience, we put it as the opening night of our of the TIFF Docs section, is called Copa 71, which is about a women's soccer tournament that took place in 1971 in Mexico City. It had, they say, over 100,000 live spectators for that event which would be the largest attendance for any women's athletics event uh, ever to this day. But this story was really kind of a race from history. You know, it billed itself as a Women's World Cup. It was not an officially sanctioned by FIFA Women's World Cup. That wouldn't happen until 20 years later uh, in 1991. But all the same, it's an extraordinary story. Uh, Venus Williams and Serena Williams have signed on as executive producers of this film. So has Alex Morgan, great women uh, soccer player for the U.S. That's one that I'm really keen to see how the distribution community responds. And we just heard the Deep Rising, which premiered at Sundance. This is a documentary, sort of an eco-thriller that Jason Momoa, the actor, narrates. He's also an executive producer. That was just picked up by Abramarama. There was a bit of good news there, but as you say, quite a lag time from Sundance. One sort of expects some bunch of films to be snapped up there, and it hasn't quite happened. 
But I wanted to follow up on what John was saying, sort of the framing of show and business, because there's a point at which there's an there's an intersection there in that I think there's not only a concern that some streaming platforms are mostly interested in true crime and celebrity-driven docs, but in terms stylistically, I think some filmmakers complain that they're being told, well, the algorithm says at 12 minutes in, you need to make this pivot. You need to have this thing sort of happen. And so it's not only genre-wise what the streamers are interested in, but how those films are constructed, which is kind of worrisome. I mean, I do think that that is happening. And, you know, one of the pleasures of working at a film festival is that I don't have to pay attention to algorithms. So uh, (laughs) I I think that we occupy a privileged uh, space, those of us who, who program for film festivals, that you know, that, that we can be trying to support film artists who want to go in different directions. Deadline's Doc Talk episode is sponsored by National Geographic Documentary Films, presenting Bobby Wine, the people's president. In Uganda's 2021 presidential election, music star, activist, and opposition leader Bobby Wine rallies his people in a dangerous fight for freedom from an oppressive 35-year regime. Playlist hails it as a portrait of unfathomable political courage, and the San Francisco Chronicle boldly declares it a clarion call against authoritarianism. The film made its world premiere at the Venice Film Festival and has screened at Telluride, BFI London International Film Festival, Two Falls, among many others, taking home audience awards at the Hamptons International Film Festival, Boston International Film Festival, and CPH Docs. Bobby Wine, the People's President, starts streaming on Hulu and Disney Plus October 6th. Well, I, uh, at the Telluride Film Festival, I finally saw Beyond Utopia. John, I think that you're very high on that film. Yeah, it's a remarkable film. I will say over the last few years, there have been a number of, certainly a number of films that are out there, but documentaries that I've seen that have dealt with immigration or, or people trying to escape the circumstances that they're in. Uh, that was a film for me I kept hearing hadn't sold, hadn't sold, hadn't sold, and was stunned because... Frankly, I I don't know that I've seen a film where the risk to life to tell the story was so phenomenally high. We talked about uh, Beyond Utopia being a a film that I thought was incredibly powerful in terms of dealing with um, the state of human migration. There was a a film I saw a a couple of years ago, frequently it was the animated film Flea, which I thought was amazing. And there was a comment in Flea about migration, you know, it it isn't a descriptor, it's a state of being. You know, nobody wants to be a migrant. They have to be. Walls, what I thought was incredibly interesting, it was trying to see that thing that divides us. There's actually has been a report, and I got to circle back so I can get the exact numbers, but there are more border walls being constructed around the world right now than at any other time in history. For me, Having an individual trying to get to that wall, you know, in America, at least we can see the wall that's being built on the border, whether we love it, whether we hate it, whether we think it's effective or not, um, we can see it and discuss it. What I appreciated about Walls, the film, was that the wall was a character in the sense it was the monster in the dark that we could never really see. 
Um, I have very high hopes for that film coming into the festival. Has it sold? Where does it stand? Um, and I guess I would your your context maybe on these films. Do you feel like we've seen more of them in recent years about migration? And by the way, I, however many there are, there always needs to be more because it's just stories that continue to happen. I guess maybe in some ways I'm just trying to express my love for it, and my appreciation for it, particularly that the filmmaker, if I understand this correctly, was an actor. She'd been in Paolo Sorrentino films, who's one of my favorite directors, was in Laurel, and yet making this incredibly personal film. And you talk about these personal films that you love, these essayist films. And to me, that is an amazing example of a filmmaker not just getting caught up because of the facts of the story, but getting caught up because there was a personal emotional stake that she found within the story. Yeah, I would agree that this film is driven by the personal mission of the director, uh, Kasia Smutniak, who's from Poland, now lives in Italy, and does have a successful career there as an actor. But she was very compelled by what is happening on the border of Poland and uh, Belarus, where you have a human migration, a lot of people coming from the Middle East, and they are being stopped in what, what they call the red zone there, a, you know, a, a borderland area in the woods of barbed wire and uh, and being, you know, dissuaded from police and military from crossing. Uh, and the film is, so th- there, are, there are activists that we see in the film who try to rescue these people. And Cassio went out to try to document what some of that activism uh, is happening. She took a camera woman uh, with her and like got in a car by themselves and um, and headed to Poland to uh, to see what was happening. And and you see over the course of the film them having to evade authorities in order to uh, tell the story. And it really has the pacing mm. of a thriller. I I think. On the theme of migration, what is incredibly striking about how she's constructed this film is you get a sense of the way refugees are divided between good refugees and bad refugees. So good refugees right now in that area of the world are people fleeing the war in Ukraine, Russia's war in Ukraine. And if you are Ukrainian who comes to Poland, you know, you're welcomed. There's food for you. There's, uh, you know, a system to set up to get your shelter. And if you come from anywhere else, um, then you're being turned back uh, by barbed wire and men with guns. So that is not a phenomenon unique to Poland at all. That is something that... Uh, happens at borders around the world. But this film, Walls, is an extraordinary look at um, at, at that. Yeah, you you, you say, and, um, and I mean this is a compliment, you, you're very diplomatic in, in how you express things. You say that they're being dissuaded by the police. The reality is um, many are being left to die. There are children in this film. Um, I mean, when I say children, kids months old, um, some special needs children, who are left there. There's one individual in a wheelchair trying to make this crossing. It's extraordinary. And if nothing else, a reminder of the power of the programming you do in bringing these films and bringing these different kinds of films. And, and for me, one of the things I really appreciate about that film 
is it was such a blend. You talk about that she went out, Acacia went out with a partner who was just filming, but there were times where they had hidden cameras. There were times where, and I mean this respectfully, it felt like Blair Witch with her running around the woods. They had to literally, you know, <laughs> drop down and hide. There were other shots that were amazingly beautiful drone shots, things that you would see. You know, I remember from uh, like uh, Fincher and Zodiac, you know, this overhead drone shot of a car at night driving. That, again, is what I really appreciate about documentary films, that they hit you in every part of your body. You know, they hit you in the gut, they hit you in the head, they hit you in the heart. Oh, well, I'm just, I'm really pleased that, that you respond to the walls the way you did, because this is a film that is going to need advocates. And, I, you know, I can, one of the exciting things about the Toronto Film Festival, about, you know, other film festivals um, that have the kind of attention of uh, press and industry that um, that we have is even even I, who have been doing this job for 18 years, can't predict which films are going to pop out. I could not have predicted to you six years ago, seven years ago, that I Am Not Your Negro by Raoul Peck uh, would be as big a phenomenon as it was that year. It's it's easier now in retrospect to say, well, of course it it was. You know, people were ready to rediscover uh, James Baldwin. Raoul Peck is an extraordinary filmmaker. I can tell you in September t- 2016, when that film was making its premiere at TIFF, there were very few people who would have expected that it would go on the next year to be the top grossing box office documentary of the year. Tom, I have a, a question for you, and, and this is a bit speculative, but it does, you know, Matt talked about the metrics that streamers will get into, and on another level for me in the, in the narrative space, it's really painful to get those notes back. I don't want you to put you in opposition to, to other larger organizations that ultimately, and I'm kind of talking about the Academy, that, that are meant to uplift, but I feel like sometimes even when we get into awards and awards aren't the end all be all, but I've heard and I've personally seen experiences where it's, well, this film, this filmmaker is, is become too quote unquote famous. So let's not vote for them and shortlist it. You know, this film, it's terrific, but it's 20 minutes too long. So that's not going to make it. I certainly, you know, Tom, when you talk about those personal films, those essayist films, again, one of my favorite, not just documentaries, but Feodia was just an amazing, meditative, trance film. I don't know that you have an answer. I don't know that my question is even specific enough, but is there a concern for you that when it comes to awards, when it comes to rewarding, that much like, hey, a comedy doesn't really stand much of a chance when it comes to best picture, Maybe this year will be a little different with Barbie. But that idea that, hey, a doc has to be something. If it is not the most important thing, if it is not fitting into a traditional box, I mean, we know what an award means in terms of bump. We know what it means in terms of attention. Is there still, or is there at all, in your opinion, ideas that remain gating to what documentary, what a storytelling, what that impact really is versus, hey, we got to go with the important thing that needs to be, you know, the Goldilocks. Not too much, not too little. It's got to be just right. Well, I think when it comes to the Academy, there's a, the the nominees, the, the shortlist and nominees for the documentary section, the Academy are chosen by the Academy's documentary branch. That's about 700 uh, people. 
And the configuration of that branch has changed a lot um, just in the last five to 10 years. You know, I give a lot of credit to uh, Roger Ross Williams um, when he was on the board of governors in the documentary branch. He really made it his mission to bring more equity to that uh, branch, to to make it more uh, international, to bring gender parity to the branch. And what that meant in the last five, 10 years is there was a huge influx of international filmmakers who have joined the the documentary branch. And they have very different tastes than the composition of the branch 10 years ago. And I think that you can see a correlation uh, of some of the nominees in recent years, films like The Mole Agent from Chile or A House of Splinters um, from Denmark, a story set in Ukraine, or uh, All That Breathes uh, that you mentioned before uh, from India or the year before, uh, Writing With Fire from India. Collective comes to mind as well out of Romania. Collective was a brilliant, brilliant film. Collective uh, from Romania, um, film that we showed at uh, Toronto last year from India called While We Watched, opened at New York's IFC Center the same weekend as Barbie and Oppenheimer and had sold-out screenings uh, throughout that weekend with folks like John Oliver and Amy Goodman coming out to do Q&As with the the subject of that film, the the Indian journalist Ravish Kumar, and a lot of Doc Branch members who are coming out to those screenings and and reacting uh, very positively to it. So I have mixed feelings about the uh, Academy of Motion Pictures, like uh, many people do, but I will say that they have upheld in recent years a slate of nominations uh, and sometimes winners that do exemplify what I think of as the best of uh, documentary uh, filmmaking today. And the fact that award carries so much prestige and that big media companies want to have some of that prestige rub off on them means that they do back films that they probably wouldn't otherwise back because of what's happening at the Academy. It all feels like the tail wagging the dog uh, to me, but if that's what it takes for a film like The Eternal Memory by Mighty Alberti from Chile to get acquired by um, MTV, which happened this year at Sundance, then I'm all for it. Tom, thank you very much. Again, we were talking to Tom Powers, the documentary programmer at the Toronto International Film Festival and obviously a connoisseur and an intellect on documentaries. Tom, thank you so much for your time. I deeply appreciate it. My pleasure. Uh, love listening to the show. Well, Don, it was great talking with Tom Powers. He was so knowledgeable, so dedicated to this art form of documentary. And I personally, I was very pleased that he was willing to talk about the doc branch of the Academy. Because as you pointed out, you know, they're gatekeepers and there are questions that can be raised about the films that they keep out as much as the ones that they allow in. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm a member of the Academy. I think the Academy does great work and some work that they don't get credit for. But, you know, look, I hope all of us do what we do in any space because we love doing it. But acknowledgments and anything that elevates is important and really important in the documentary space. I have my opinions about my experience, but again, I think it's really important, as Tom says, to to elevate, to try to find new avenues. If there's a gate there, you can complain about it or you can you know jump over it, run around it, kick it down, do what you have to do to get the story out there. 
And I'm very happy that there are people like Tom out there who are working to acknowledge and elevate films. And coming out of Toronto, uh, some of these outstanding films and documentaries have gotten the recognition that they deserve. Yeah, we have some, a couple of updates, which is great. We were talking about distribution and how it's been so difficult for a lot of documentaries to find buyers. Well, a couple of the documentaries that premiered at Toronto have, in fact, gone on to earn distribution. Sorry, Not Sorry, which is the New York Times, uh, from the New York Times, directed by Caroline Sue and Caramonos. This looks at the case of Louis C.K. and the sexual misconduct scandal around him. That That's been picked up, and so has Lucy Walker's film, which is Mountain Queen, The Summits of Lakpa Sherpa. So that's really good news, and it's going to bring a lot of comfort, I think, to people in the doc community to see those sales. One of the films that we talked about in our conversation with Tom was the film Walls, which was directed, first-time director, uh, Kasia Smutniak, A phenomenal actor and has worked with one of my favorite directors, uh, Paolo Sorrentino, in the film Lauro. Uh, He's also directed The Great Beauty, which is one of the best films, in my opinion, ever made. She did this documentary about the immigration and the border crisis between Poland and, and Belarus. It's an extraordinary film, but she's an extraordinary individual. And when she talks about, from a personal point of view, her mission to tell this story, her personal connection... Uh, with Poland, um, her family being there, and the lengths that she went to and what she went to both as a filmmaker and a personal toll that it took not only on herself but on other activists that she got to meet and interview who are doing everything they can against all odds to try to give aid and comfort to individuals who are not just migrants but truly being used as political pawns. And unfortunately, Matt, we see a lot of that. Uh, where individuals who are trying to escape very difficult situations are being used as political pawns and props. It's a painful story. It's a powerful story. But frankly, that's why you and I are here, to speak with individuals like Kasia, who are telling these incredible stories. So that's going to be on our next episode of Doc Talk. Kasia Smutniak, the director of the powerful documentary Walls. I've seen it as well, and I agree with you. I think it's an extraordinary film and a true piece of cinema. I mean, almost auteur-like, and considering that this is Kasha's first documentary, it's a remarkable achievement. It's deeply moving and powerful and important, as you say. And that's part of our goals here with Doc Talk is to bring attention to the critical content being made by these outstanding filmmakers. We're going to be back next week with that episode of John's interview with Kasia Smutniak, the director of Walls. And we hope you will join us every week for a new episode of Doc Talk with John Ridley and myself, Matt Carey. Mm-hmm.